Welcome to What's Your Beef? Each week we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, I'm Jane Cudahy and this is What's Your Beef? Michael Wilkes is the head of the Thomas Elder Institute, the research and development arm of Elders. He works alongside Meat and Livestock Australia for the MLA and Elders Co-Innovation Project and is an expert in carbon farming. He considers it a key sustainability initiative that many beef producers are considering as part of their agribusiness. Welcome to What's Your Beef, Michael? Thanks, Jane. (laughs) Great to be here. Thank you. In a nutshell... What is carbon farming and how does it relate to Australian beef production? So, Jane, there's a, a, a range of, of ways that we can look at carbon farming and I guess one of them is, is, is offsetting the emissions that a given business has through, through other means um, or probably more importantly is reducing the emissions that we are producing from our systems so essentially optimizing the efficiency of, of, of our of our beef production systems um, so the opportunities for producers really is as, as I see it is um, there's there's obviously avenues that are becoming ever increasingly easy to venture into to document um, your um, carbon sequestration or or reduction in emissions and gain credits, which can be traded um, for a dollar value. Um, but as I see it, um, it's probably the greatest opportunity that it it, it, it provides um, to us is, is to be uh, demonstrating to the world at large and particularly the consumer, particularly the consumer in parts of, parts of the, uh, the world where they may not necessarily understand agriculture um, and, and how food is produced, demonstrate our environmental stewardship um, uh, that we do care. And um, that, that's, a, that's an, important, an important point, certainly for um, the red meat industry moving forward, um, especially with the, the competition that we see from other, other protein sources. Um, the other, the other main bit to me that's that, that's really key is that if we're um, optimising the efficiency of how our animals are growing and um, and and how how quickly and 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 well we're producing them, um, by default we are actually uh, reducing our emissions and our carbon footprint in itself. So you sort of get a it's kind of a win-win-win in the sense <laughs> that yeah. So is the onus on producers to make changes at a, at a grassroots level on farm? There is onus there because, I mean, the, the reality is ruminants are emitters of, of greenhouse gases and, 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 and CO2 equivalents. So that, that's obviously the, the, the primary source at the ground level. So um, as managers of those animals, we're the people that have the greatest control over changing that. But again, it's it, it's really about looking at looking at our production systems and trying to tweak them to get the most out of them, which ultimately means means more. So, what can people do when you're talking about um, carbon farming in Australian beef enterprises right now? Um, you know, cattle emit CO two. We know that. So, what are people doing, and how are they incorporating 
carbon farming into their businesses? So probably from a formal standpoint, the best way to look at it is for those people that are trying to embark on registered carbon farming projects through um, the federal government's clean energy regulator and that um, there's a range of methodologies which are approved that enable us to um, access, register a project and access the ability to generate credits. So for cattle enterprises at the moment, there's, there's, a, there's a range of, um, range of options, um, mainly through, um, there's, a, there's a methodology around feeding nitrates to beef cattle, not so applicable in an extensive system. Um, there's a whole herd management methodology, which is around sort of uh, documenting herd performance over time with a major focus on reproductive efficiency and um, weaner, weaner growth rate efficiency, um, whereby if we can demonstrate that management changes have been put in place that have increased the reproductive efficiency, um, whereby animals are you know, in calf and performing as, as, you know, efficiently as possible. And we, we, we're increasing the number of cows in calf and that can be through obviously getting more in calf and or um, isolating those, you know, those non, non-productive individuals and removing them from the system. Likewise, you know, maximising the growth of our, our young cattle. I mean, realistically, um, if you look at it from a, from a growth efficiency standpoint, you know, Young weaner cattle are your most efficient growers. You know, you give them, you give them the feed, they they will they will grow like stink. Um, <laughs> and and so realistically, the sooner they are out of our production systems, um, that reduces our overall footprint. So you know, um, every day, an animal has a maintenance requirement, and 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 with that maintenance feed intake. Um, and maintenance cellular function comes at a given level of emissions which are emitted um, just because the animal's alive and respiring. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is obviously the longer an animal takes to get to its market endpoint, um, the higher the total maintenance emissions um, and therefore at a whole herd level, the, the higher emissions that you have. So that herd methodology is there, largely applicable to larger groups of animals. Then we get into the soil carbon sequestration methodologies to to actually accrue credits. So basically, that's that has a has a direct impact on our on our grazing systems in the in the sense that we can we can uh, isolate an area of land, register it as a as a project, and imply different uh, management strategies, either um, pasture renovation using you know, deep-rooted perennial pastures, um, different fertiliser strategies, um, and particularly grazing management strategies in more intensive uh, rotational grazing management, whereby we're able to manage ground cover um, and and uh, minimise the uh, the effects of um, of overgrazing. Um, that those those methodologies under a soil sequestration project are, are eligible um, and if we're implying new change to a piece of land they're eligible and that's how we can register register a project and basically how we how we quantify the effect of that is is a, a series of uh, soil samples um, at the start of a project and then serially throughout a 25-year permanence period for a project that's registered um, it's not 
compulsory to take samples all the time, but the reality is if people wish to gather information, uh, well, basically gather the information that enables them to uh, generate credits, um, they need to do some serial soil samples, measure the organic carbon level in the soil, um, calculations are made uh, whereby um, we can then infer how much carbon has been sequestered and therefore the number of tonnes of carbon and therefore the equivalent carbon credits. So the ability to measure this must have come a long way pretty quickly because you've just rattled off a whole different way in different ways that we can measure it. Yeah, so the, the methodologies have been around probably since the major change, sort of 2014-ish, um, in, in terms of what the, the, the uh, Emissions Reduction Fund um, and the, the federal government's strategy around emissions and, and carbon farming options. The methodologies are there. I think typically uh, we've seen a we've seen a change in the soil sequestration methodologies of late, whereby they changed the permanence period from 100 years to 25 years, um, which which makes it more relevant and appealing to to people to be engaged with. But the, but the reality is um, this is still very much in its infancy. Um, uh, there are a number of projects that are, are registered nationally, um, particularly in livestock systems. So it's getting it's getting a bit of traction. I just want to go back to something you said just a bit earlier because we were talking about um, the efficiency of, of herds and a lot of you know the, the efficient period of, of weaners and then trying to get them off at a younger age. This is is this because you're approaching operations on a enterprise by enterprise because those weaners then have to go somewhere else and they continue you know, their life cycles, which would su- suggest that it beca- they do become less efficient so there'd be those operations that, you know, would be at a disadvantage in terms of, of carbon farming fairly immediately. Two ways to look at that, I guess. Um, not not in the sense that, you know, if, if, if an animal's growth path from birth to slaughter can be as relatively linear as possible. Obviously, you know, we, we're faced with seasonal variation in feed supply and quality, and, and that will see, see ebbs and flows. But, but the reality is the faster that we can get a given animal to its, to its market end point, um, the, the better overall. Obviously, an animal that's had growth checks within its earlier life and perhaps um, people, you know, people that buy wieners that, that that may have some frame but less condition, a little less condition, and they see, you know, explosive growth, which is which is purely compensatory growth because they've had a handbrake on them. Mm. Um, it, it it the overall footprint for that animal for its life is still going to be higher than one that's just poked along at a moderate to good growth rate, um, simply because of that maintenance level, that basal maintenance level of they're emitting every day. So mm. less days to less days to uh, less days to slaughter, or in the case of a breeder animal, less days to the the point at which they become reproductively viable and and start producing, the better. So what what are the current incentives for people to get um, involved in carbon farming? From the official registered project standpoint, um, the incentives uh, are, are largely around how, the accrual of credits. Um, 
But that's not a monetary thing yet, is it? It it really is. Oh, it is. It is in the sense that there's there's annual, um, or no, sorry, biannual auctions of carbon credits that the government run. So the last one of those was in March this year. And they were the market value was uh, uh, just over the sixteen dollar mark per per credit or per ton of carbon. So um, the reality is, for a given enterprise, the um, for the herd methodologies or the source sequestration methodologies, like we're not talking. You know, um, I'm fairly pragmatic about these things. We're not talking thousands and thousands of dollars. You're not going to make your first billion hectare. by carbon farming yet. No, but the reality <laughs> is it cover it more than covers it, its costs, and there's a small, um, you know, additional income stream. Um, all we're doing, and in, in in many instances, and this is the thing, in many instances, the the practices that we're applying or the interventions that we're putting in on farm are are no more than best practice. Um, all we're doing is overlaying an accounting system of carbon over the top of it and 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 trying to target an income stream okay. uh, for that. The Australian beef industry, there is that commitment to be carbon neutral by 2030. Is that achievable? Yes, it is. What has to change for us to get there? From a carbon neutral by 2030 point of view, I mean, we, we, we've got a number of, of, of levers that we can can pull on to, to achieve that. Um, I mean, if you think that our direct livestock emissions nationally uh, is about 10% um, of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions has come, come from livestock um, and... and uh, that, that accounts for most of, of the, the agricultural emissions that, that tip into Australia. Um, you know, it's not, not massive compared to other industries. Um, no, that, we're not, the, that, we're not that, the biggest emission. Emitter. We're definitely not the biggest, but it's not to say that we... we uh, get off scot-free. Get off and scot-free, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we've got to, as I said, there's a number of levers we can pull on here. I mean, by pushing, we've got technologies to reduce methane um, in the sense of uh, there's there are different supplements that are available uh, more and more now, which, I mean, some of which we've been using for a very long time. I mean, a lot of the rumen modifiers in Menensin and Lasalicid um, which are used extensively in our feedlot intensive feeding industries and, and many other supplements. I mean, they, they in themselves have a, have a, uh, a methane um, reducing effect, which um, you know, we, we end up converting methane to CO2 equivalents. So we, we can, we can all bounce between methane and CO2. Um, but they're all, they're all greenhouse gases that are, that are emitted by livestock, but, um, basically, you know, if an animal is producing more methane, um, particularly that that leads to a high CO two equivalent out in the atmosphere. I mean, methane methane is produced by bacteria in the rumen or the digestive system of, of cattle and sheep and goats. Um, and if an animal is producing 
more methane because it has more methanogenic bacteria within its digestive system. Um, those methanogenic bacteria are, are slow-moving, um, energy-stealing little critters. And um, basically what they do is they actually steal, um, steal hydrogen, um, the chemical structure of methane is CH4. Um, those four hydrogen atoms are, are stolen by the methanogenic bacteria and plumbed into a methane molecule. And uh, that hydrogen would typically be used in energy metabolism pathways for the, for the animal and, and that would enable it to, to grow and, and, and reproduce. So if we are producing more methane, the animal is running less efficiently. So there are options to, to reduce reduce that uh, those those methane producing bacteria in the rumen through supplements and that as I said there's some of those we're already using and is that applicable to all breeds and areas because you know uh, are there some breeds that uh, produce more methane just because of their you know genotypes and that sort of thing breed wise within cattle no there is very there is genetic variation in methane producing ability um, it's not so much limited to breeds um, if you assumed a similar similar feed type mm. probably the greatest effect is around actual feed type that they're on um, with with lower quality slower digesting forages being more prone to a higher methane output because uh, the digestive process is slower and the methanogenic bugs get going in the rumen and then that's all produce more methane. So what's, what scenarios, is that like northern Australian, you know, um, possibly with some of the pastures not being as high quality or is that like I'm just trying Look, to work you, out? You, definite, you definitely will, you know, obviously a lower quality forage and, a, you know, a dry season tropical forage with low quality is there. Mm-hmm. That's obviously has an effect because that's not an easy fix either. Like if you're trying to no. get to quite a you know um, broad uptake and a, and a you know a fairly efficient um, improvement on this right across an industry, I'd, I'd imagine that would be a that might be in a too hard basket for for quite some time. Yeah, so probably the the tact the tact for many of the northern systems are. Some of the supplements that are coming out are going to be able to be delivered. Um, there's there's a, obviously a huge push around the seaweed space nationally that many would have seen. Not, you know, broad-scale adoption is still going to take a long time and, and how, in, in my personal opinion, how feasible that is for people in very remote areas, obviously. You know, they might be still feeding out mineral licks and, and, um, and, and protein. But you know what is the cost effectiveness of that? That's this all still takes time, and definitely those supplements though are a means of of improving the utilization of that feed and and trying to inhibit inhibit those methanogenic bacteria. Probably in the north, where we said oh you know, the the greatest potential for increasing the efficiency of your herd and thereby reducing the emissions. Um, is through genetic improvement, through selecting, you know, the high growth efficiency, high reproductive efficiency animals. Um, there is variation in meth- inherent methane producing ability, which there's you know, working on breeding values and working on a whole heap of information around that. But that's still some some time away to, to strip apart what the drivers of that genetic variation in inherent 
methane producing ability is. But the reality is at the end of the day, if we can keep as many animals reproductively viable um, and growing, that is the key. There's no silver bullet. And that's that's the the application for the for the northern systems as I see it. Yeah, right. Well look, I do you know, want to come back around to the genomics and the genetic side of things because I understand that's another one of your areas of interest and passion. But I do just want to change tack for a second because I understand that your your um foray into the beef industry started very young and um your interest in nutrition and that sort of thing came out from um, coming up with some feed variations for your chooks. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, so I grew up in sunny South Australia, actually, but north of north of Adelaide, and uh, yeah, always always had uh, had a had a passion for agriculture and livestock in particular. But um, yeah, it was a mad poultry breeder and. Uh, and, and used to play around making up different rations for the birds, and then that evolved into some sheep and some cattle, and then it's uh, yeah went on to went on to study um, animal science and uh, and stayed in the research world for a while and completed a PhD in ruminant physiology and nutrition. And um, here we are. <laughs> and and here we are. <laughs> so I understand. Going back to the genetic side of things, I understand that genomics was uh, is, and you probably were about to get to there anyway. But um, an interest, and it's a relatively recent technology. Um, what's your area of interest or, or involvement with genomics? Sure, uh, Jane. Well, we've sort of uh, the, the the genomics has has been a the, which is the measurement of of actual DNA structure and and gene gene expression um is uh, you know rapidly become more and more cost effective and and it has been being used in our seed stock industries for a little while now um so bull breeders and 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 in the south ram breeders um measuring the actual genes that an animal has and we know that certain genes are associated with certain production traits and and therefore an animal's uh, prowess in those traits um, and and how well they may perform. So um, it's it's got more and more cost effective, and and the uh, databases to enable us to compare animals and analyse them are, are more and more um, easy. Typically, that's been something that's been isolated to seed stock producers that have put a lot of effort into measuring the physical performance or phenotypic performance of their animals um, as they grow. Um, as well as applying the actual the uh, genomics testing, which is a, a DNA test, um, we actually um, through elders and and particularly uh, Thomas Elder Consulting, which is our independent consultancy arm. I've been working on a project uh, to develop um, and bring to market uh, alongside a partner, Neogen Australasia, which is a, a the Australian arm of, of um, Neogen Corporation and American Genetics company um, basically a an offering that will enable us to test the genetic uh, or genomic potential of an animal um, in commercial herds and in crossbred animals in particular which typically we haven't been able to do so um, that'll enable us to test a group of animals um, particularly replacement females test them uh, and, and rank them um, on 
um, 16 different traits, um, production traits, and that way um, enable us to see which of those are genetically superior for the traits that are of interest to us um, and select them rather than, than waiting till they've been in a herd and retrospectively looking back at how they perform to make a decision. We can select animals before they enter the, the breeding herd um, with higher accuracy around their potential uh, to produce and stay in the herd for longer and, and produce high quality calves, make those selection decisions earlier and um, and uh, then market those younger cattle, which we're not going to keep when they're worth the most. And I guess this would really marry in with what you were talking about with efficiencies leading into carbon trading and becoming carbon neutral as, a, as an industry. Absolutely. I mean, at, at, the, at the end of the day, from a carbon neutrality point of view and and uh, industry sustainability, you know it's it's uh, it's about us championing what we're doing as an industry, showing that we're targeting efficiency and you know if we are focusing on maximising the efficiency and the and 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 particularly profitability of our businesses, which and being practical too, because yeah. I guess and you being, know this and is... being practical, it's yeah. it's definitely that's the focus. I mean, all, all we're doing then is overlaying a, an accounting methodology of greenhouse gases or carbon, or you know, it's it's how we communicate what we're doing. And so, if you've got an efficient an efficient animal, mm. by default, it it is emitting the least amount of greenhouse gases per unit of production or per unit of feed that that animal is consuming as possible. I mean, some of these supplements really, really reduce the, the emissions level, but practically at broad scale, how are they applied? Um, not to say that they're not going to have a fit, but they're not going to have a fit for every animal in the country. But um, as an industry as a whole, if we can get things as finely, relatively finely tuned as we possibly can, given the constraints of environment, Etc. Um, you know, we we are showing that we're stewarding activities and and our efforts to have the least impact possible. Okay. Well, look, we're here to talk about. Well, we're here because of Beef Twenty One. Um, you're going to be presenting in the Elders Pavilion, as I understand, at next year's event. What are you What are you going to be bringing? What do you What can people expect when they come up to the Elders Pavilion and come and have a look at the display from Thomas Elders? Sure. So, um, aside from the, the wide range of um, products and services that our typical Elders business um, can provide through livestock agency and uh, and uh, real estate insurance, finance, and and rural supplies, of course, which is what we're typically known for within Elders, the the, the Thomas Elder family, which is. Uh, Relatively young part of part of elders um, consists of the Thomas Elder uh, Institute, which I I head up, which is the research development and extension arm, working with industry and um, industry bodies to to bring our network closer to, close together to industry development. Um, we've got the Thomas Elder Consulting Team, which is the independent FIFA service arm of the business. So. Um, we're going to have a booth there within the elders' tent. A um, number of our leading agribusiness and livestock production consultants will be on site there to uh, to talk to people about the services that we offer and and um, 
have a chat. And then uh, we've also got the Tom Seldon Markets team, which is the market analysis arm of the business, which is a, a very new part of the business. But um, largely there to, to showcase our people. That's that's what we invest in in the business is, is human capital. And beef is about networking too. Like the part of the major appeal for beef is, is net, the networking and chatting to people. Absolutely. So that's 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 the thing. We we we're here to here to support producers and meet their their goals. So we want to we want to take beef as an opportunity to to catch up with a whole heap of people and um, and see what the state of play is and see if we can be of any assistance uh, through through our consulting services across the country. And have you come to many beef events before, Michael? I actually haven't been before, Joan. Oh, I was wondering whether this is going to. What are you looking forward to most as a as a newbie? Uh, I am probably, obviously, you know, obviously the meeting and greeting is a very important <laughs> bit. Um, I do do look forward to having a bit of a look around at some of the the cattle on show there. Um, I understand there's quite a number of seed stock producers get up there and. Yep, and, there are. Uh, show, showcase their, <laughs> their, their bulls. So um, I am quite a fan of, of Boss Indicus cattle. So I'm pretty keen to, pretty keen to uh, get up and get up and have a look at what the latest and greatest are there. Um, Absolutely. And I guess honest. with your background, I think the, the Ag Tech, um, Ken Coombe Ag Tech Yards would be of particular interest to you too. With, I think they're quite interactive this time around as well. Yes, no, it'll be um, it'll be really really good to see some of the new ag tech that's coming out. We as a business have a, a pretty strong ag tech strategy, and, and I'm involved in in a, um, a number of projects around um, particularly the adoption of ag tech and and making sure that it's um, delivering value to producers and and uh, and doing the providing a solution and doing the job that we want of it, not not just a cool, shiny gadget. So, <laughs> but um, what's exciting pretty... for you at the moment? Like, you'd have some really interesting things come across your desk, and we've just spoken, you know, at length about some of the, the bigger projects that you've got on, but what's what's something that's a bit new that's exciting that people should keep an eye on? The ability to integrate information and data from multiple different pieces of technology um, easily into a dashboard package that can be monitored. I mean, I think typically often a lot of ag tech suppliers, everyone has their own app or dashboard or login and and that's probably limited things because producers, obviously, I mean, you don't want 20 different logins to get in and check your bits of gear. Tank monitors and cameras and flow rate sensors and weather stations and a lot of this technology has been around for some time in various iterations and, and yes it is getting niftier and slicker and more efficient but I think the, the ability to streamline data in and have it in an easy easy software whereby you can access all of that in one touch essentially um, is is probably going to be one of the drivers to get people adopting Ag tech, because I know myself, it's a oh, no, fine. You know, I don't want to be looking at twenty different websites or apps to to get a feel for what's going on. So, but I think it comes back to being practical again, doesn't it? Absolutely, I like simple things, and <laughs> um, 
nice and nice and practical is is where it's at. So that's definitely the software side of side of things is 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 an exciting space. Um, and that with that comes the ability to actually capture information and look at it and analyze it and make a decision. So that's mm. probably something that I'm very passionate about is it's all very well to capture the information, but what are you going to do with it? So centralise it, capture it, make an informed decision that's practical on, on the ground that's going to make change and have value to your business. Well, I think that there'll be many uh, producers mirroring your sentiments. That, that makes perfect sense to me. Now, another big part of beef is obviously obviously the taste sensation that um, we get from many different facets around the the um, event. But are you a home cook? Do you cook at home, Michael? I'm no, no uh, Gordon Ramsay, but <laughs> I'll... You'll give it a go? I'll, I'll give it a go. Yeah, especially you're not if starving. there's a barbecue involved. So. <laughs> okay. Well, look, we've asked everyone that's come on this podcast, what is your favourite cut of beef to cook at home? Not for, you know, maybe if the neighbours pop over, I'll give you that one, but certainly not for a pre-planned dinner party. So what's your favourite cut to cook at home? Um, I cough a bit of flack for this off my friends. I'm but, already um, excited. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm, if, I, if I was better on the slow cooking, I, I, this is a toss-up. If I was better on the slow cooking, I'd say brisket, but I, yep. I'm, I'm probably lacking the finite skills of of that. Um, from a grill point of view, I'm a big fan of uh, oyster blade steak or a flat iron a flat iron steak, as they're called. And yep. everyone, everyone goes, oh, what about the bit of gristle in the middle? But no, um, if, you re- if you're really fussy, you can take that out. Um but if it's if it's good enough beef and it's well well cooked and and treated uh, you know as in not overcooked and treated appropriately, the flavour in that oyster blade is yeah hard to beat in my opinion. Well, that's excellent, and I think we have a new cut. Uh, I have to say, um, I haven't had an oyster blade yet, so I'm very excited oh. about that. How do you prepare it? Do you salt it well before, um, or do you? Yeah, I mean it, it, it's out of the forequarter, um, so there is that uh, bit of connective tissue through the center but um largely just treat it like any other any other steak and and off the right animal <laughs> it's um it's I, I really rate the flavor particularly so excellent um i cop flack for it but uh no if it's delicious I enjoy who cares it. exactly and the, 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 you'll see that yeah i've noticed the price in the supermarket of is increasing it used to be a really good cheap option now it's a really good mid-range option it's always the way. The, the tasty cuts are, are certainly getting further and further up the ladder. Absolutely. Uh, Michael Wilkes, thank you so much for your time today uh, with us, um, but we look forward to seeing you at Beef 21. Thanks, Jane. Really look forward to it too. No Thanks problem. for having me. Beef Australia is proudly supported by our principal partners. Thanks to the Australian Government Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, the Queensland Government, Meat and Livestock Australia and the Rockhampton Regional Council. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.